RadioInfluence.com. You are sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Sitting Ringside, back for another week. My name is David Penzer, and of course, we are so glad that you are here to listen to this thing we call a podcast. Another week goes by, another great guest. We're going to welcome Al Snow, and uh, boy, he has a story to tell, Uh, you know, WWF, WWE, uh, ECW. We'll talk about the uh, WCW tryout that he thought that I, 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 I got got him heat, and we've we've talked that out, and uh, but we'll talk about that story as well. I hope, and um, you know, now he just recently bought OVW, uh, involved with Tough Enough, an agent for uh, for TNA, and some of the crazy times of of, of their history. So. A lot to talk about, and he's a pretty funny guy with a unique perspective on the business, so I think you'll enjoy him. want to give you an alert next week. Next week, it is confirmed. Uh, the Total Package Lex Luger will be on this very podcast, and uh, we are so excited to have Lex on. And uh, uh, if you have any questions that you'd like me to ask Lex, he doesn't do a ton of these podcasts, uh, you can hit me up on Twitter at David Penzer or the show's Twitter at Penzer Ringside. If you're not social media savvy, you could email me at David Penzer, all one word, at radioinfluence.com. David Penzer at radioinfluence.com. We are excited to have the total package, Lex Luger, on the show next week. And we are just as excited to have this week's guests. That's easy for you to say, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to bring on, without further ado, Al Snow. We are honored to have a legendary teacher, an honorary judge on Tough Enough and TNA Gut Check, uh, and uh, somebody who just recently bought Ohio Valley Wrestling, and that kind of piqued my interest. So we're going to talk about his career and also talk about uh, buying Ohio, Ohio Valley Wrestling and um, what that the future plans are. And I'm talking about the one and only Al Snow. Al, welcome to City Ringside. Uh, honored to have you. Well, thank you very much, Dave. I appreciate you having me on. So uh, going back to the beginning, in uh, uh, doing some, uh, in doing some uh, investigation for this uh, conversation, it seems like you had a long run on the indies after you broke in, uh, more than 10 years before, you know, finally finding some success. Uh, tell me about that. And uh how 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 was that? Was it frustrating? Were you ever tempted just to to call it quits, or uh, you know, uh, just keep pushing on? Well, at the time that I broke in, I um, I broke in in 1982, and the uh, territories were still in existence at that. Point. And uh, you know, Vince McMahon had not really started the war. Um, they call it the War of '84, um, where he um, started going around and. Um, basically hiring all the workers that were in the territory, leaving uh, basically just the uh, wrestlers behind. Um, you know, wrestlers just can't draw money. Workers draw money. And um, so as a result, the territorial offices started to shut down. And um, at that point, they weren't called independents. They were called outlaws because they were working outside the uh, normal associations of promotion. 
And, um, you know, uh, I did all right. I did well. I just didn't make a ton of money. Um, it was, it was, uh, it got frustrating at a point after about 12 years of being in the, uh, being wrestling and, uh, working pretty regularly. And I just didn't feel like I was getting out there and wasn't, you know, wasn't growing. I wasn't advancing. And, um, I was known as the best kept secret in wrestling. That was the reputation I had. At some point, that's a compliment, but then, you know, you like want to start telling people the secret. You're like, hey, let it out. You know, start smartening people up. So it took a while before I really um, got a, what you would call, quote unquote, national break. It, so, it sounds like it sounds like you were caught in between the end of the territories and the beginning of the uh, the WWF and WCW expansion. Uh, does that sound about right, kind of time wise? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, uh, um, the end of the territories played itself out throughout the eighties. You know, and uh, WWF was really. Um, starting to grow on a national level, but, and so was WCW, thanks to, uh, you know, Ted Turner's, uh, you know, WTBS at the same time. Um, But I don't need to tell you, I mean, wrestling's cyclical and, you know, even back in the days with the territories, you know, one territory would be hot, one another one would cool down and then somewhere else would heat up. And, you know, it just, it's it's the cycle of the, business and just as I was getting at a point experience wise and understanding wise and development wise to maybe uh, uh, take my career a little further business started cooling off started dying down you know towards the the latter half of the back half of the uh, 80s and the very early part of the 90s and then you know um, so much so that by the time I got to WBF in 95 I mean you know, business was, was really, really tough. I mean, it was, it was pretty, pretty far down. In fact, I remember when we were out on the road, we actually got like our a hundred thousand dollar house and we were like, you know, celebrating because it had been a long time before since we cracked a ceiling like that. Yeah. There was a point in WCW there too, that if we drew like a thousand people or 1500 people in uh, Greensboro, I remember uh, it was Ric Flair and Randy Savage started a feud. Uh, with Randy coming off WWF and, uh, and we drew like 1500 people or 2000 people and everybody celebrated like it was a sellout. It's crazy. Yeah. 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 Because you were so, you know, so starved for a decent house back then, you know, it, it just timing, you know, uh, of course my time had never been the best. And, you know, I got in just as, uh, the territorial system was starting to, um, go through its cycle and fade away. And then, you know, national promotions started to develop, um, you know, but that, that's, that's happened throughout the history of the wrestling. Movement, so, so in 1995, before you ended up in, in WWF, uh, it had somewhat of a tug of war between Paul Heyman and Jim Cornette for your, uh, availability. Eventually you landed in uh, smoky mountain wrestling, uh, describe the experience of finally sort of working your first quote unquote territory for uh, Jimmy Cornette up in Smoky Mountain? Well, um, it was the first time I'd really gotten to be featured or utilized as a draw in a territory. You know, I'd worked the other, you know, territories. I'd worked for Dick the Bruiser and uh, Byrne, Ganya, and Muchnick, and uh, 
Cannon and those guys, but that was just, you know, I was green as grass and I'd just come in and either be just a job guy on TV coming in for the day and, you know, paid to put the other guys over or else I'd, they just used me as a coom, which was plus one other match or additional all-stars or other exciting bouts. You know, I didn't even have a name to be put on the poster. Um, so to actually be, you know, featured and to, you know, be pushed a little bit and to utilize the TV to where, you know, now my name actually meant something on the poster. I was actually a factor in the draw. That was, that was pretty much the first time in Smoky Mountain and uh, in an actual true territory um, as opposed to just all the uh, outlaws that I used to go around in. And it was, it was, you know, what an awesome experience to, you know, to be there, you know, Cornette, you know, uh, everybody knows Cornette and knows, you know, his history and, and his, uh, you know, his knowledge of uh, the wrestling business. Uh, but then to be, you know, sort of get to the opportunity to work an angle with, uh, you know, Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson. I mean, it, it just, that's indescribable. I mean, it's, it's, to have a guy like Ricky Morton, his father was in, you know, was in the wrestling business. Ricky had been in it since he was a teenager. Um, you know, and for them, you know, they were so ridiculously over in, in Carolina, in, 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 you know, the, uh, Louisiana and, they were so over wherever they went um, and to have that kind of understanding and experience and, you know, to get the chance to work with those guys was, was priceless. You had Tony Anthony, uh, dirty white boy and worked out in Gulf coast and for the fours and, you know, a bunch of other territories and he had all that experience and Tracy Smothers and, you know, Dr. Tom Pritchard and, you know, Jimmy Del Rey. And I mean, I was, it just, there were, a lot of great guys. Chris Candido. I mean, I dearly love Chris Candido. Um, just what a wonderful, wonderful person he was. Um, you know, and to get to be around those guys and 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 to get that that experience with them was was uh, um, just priceless. It really was. I can't even imagine uh, any good any good Jim Cornette stories off the top of your head. Uh, uh, the very first day I came down for TV, um, it had been a long time, you know, at that point I hadn't had worked TV in, uh, years, you know, I, all I did was I would be brought in, you know, as a heel to, uh, work like outlaw shows. And then basically, you know, it was a house show, it wasn't TV and you had to kind of make yourself and get your heat all on the same night, get your baby face over and, you know, try and keep some kind of heat so that they'd bring you back. Um, but you, you know, house shows, uh, live events are worked differently and at a different pace than the TV because TV, they can, they can get disinterested real quick and they'll turn the channel. So I showed up to work with George South and, uh, what an underrated guy that guy is. Absolutely. He's, he's such a, yeah, what a great hand. I mean, he's just awesome. And, uh, showed up and I went out there and, you know, started working the audience and, you know, um, and stalling and, uh, basically working like it was a, a live event. And, uh, we had five minutes. I spent maybe two or three minutes killing time and then did two or three high spots and then hit a springboard leg drop or something, beat that George South. And apparently Cornette was in the back, just flipping out. Screaming, no. yelling, chairs. And, uh, but when I came back, he's like, okay, okay. That was, that was good. But it, 
that's not what we need. Here's, here's what we need. I need you to go back out and uh, challenge him again, okay? And then uh, I need you a little bit of a match. Like, okay, so I go back out, and, uh, you know, I'm like, it's like, you know, show that you're really good, that you, you know, you're better. I'm like, all right. So I went back out. George accepts my challenge, and I beat him in about 30 seconds. And apparently Cornette was in the back having an aneurysm, and he was screaming in Jim Ross's ear as I was approaching the uh, uh, interviews, the, the commentator's desk to do an interview with Jim Ross, and Ross kept his composure, and I did an interview, and then came to the back, and you, you know, you'd have never known it if, it hadn't, if the boys hadn't told me that he, he was going berserk back there. So. So he was actually that that was back when he was able to like hold it in and 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 not uh not not lose his uh, his uh, shit in your face. Oh, uh, he he would he would lose his shit. I I've seen him lose his shit, but he would he's never done it to me, and he's and I've only seen it from afar around me. I've never I don't know what it is, but he's just never done it right and directly in front of me or to me at all. Yeah, wow. he's a unique character. He was on this show, and uh, uh, we had some fun with him. And uh, uh, one of the, one of the best of all time. Hey, was Brian Hildebrand in in Smoky Mountain when you were there? And if so, do, any memories of him? Oh yeah, Brian. Brian Hildebrand was uh, what a dear sweet man he was. Yeah, one, of, one awesome of one of my favorite people of all time. For those who who don't recognize the name, he was uh, referee Mark Curtis in WCW and uh, passed away way too early uh from uh from right. cancer and and uh wonderful human you know th- there's very few people there's the bobby eatons of the world and there's very few people that are universally liked by every single person in the business but uh i'd say even more so than bobby maybe uh brian hildebrand was just a wonderful man so i was wondering if you had any stories if uh any if he refereed any of your matches anything he might have taught you because he oh, really yeah. knew a lot about the business uh, he, he would he would referee uh, you know all my matches and, and it was just it was such a uh, privilege to to get to uh, you know work with him because he would he'd be right there he'd react and and that was the thing too I mean he genuinely reacted as if it was real yeah you know and uh, yeah. and I I always felt you know some other people disagree but I always felt like that his reactions accentuated what the wrestlers themselves were doing. Um, and made it seem more realistic because some of those things would happen. You'd see a, a referee kind of, even in boxing, you see him wince or kind of, you know, get shaken up a little bit by, by the action. And, uh, you know, and Brian uh, was able to do that in such a way that, you know, he Tommy Young, he, t- he took a lot from Tommy Young too. Tommy Young would do those kind of things too. And I mean, it just, a, just a tad more believable. You know, it just, it, it, it added to it. And he was such a sweet guy. I mean, he opened up his home to, to numerous wrestlers when we'd come down and stay in the, the territory on the, you know, traveling back and forth. And he, yeah. when the whole time I was there, I would drive down and I'd stay right there, you know, uh, with him and his, and his uh, girlfriend, Pam, and who became his wife, uh, Sandy Scott and I would stay at the house and then we'd go out and make the loop and then, you know, on the fourth day, I'd drive back to Ohio and then wait a couple of days and then drive back down to Tennessee and, you know, stay there at Brian's house. And just such an awesome, what a wonderful time. It really was. 
Yeah, one of the best. He he actually taught me, you know, that my reactions uh, sitting, you know, uh, ringside during a match, you know, are important as well. So I would I would start reacting to moves and you know big moves and and stuff like that, you know, uh, wincing and stuff like that too. So you know that kind of stuff can't, you yeah. know, every little bit, you know, certainly helps. You know, the crowd's looking right at, you know, the ring, and I'm sitting right about, especially at house shows, right down next to it. But yeah, what a wonderful guy. And I, I, I had to ask you about him. Uh, and uh, so you go to WWF at the time. Um, you, you mentioned a little bit about, you know, the business had, had, had kind of cooled down. You had a, a few different characters that uh, they, they, they used you as. And eventually you became Leaf Cassidy, uh, one half of the new Rockers. Tell me about that. That must have been interesting. Well, I did. Um... You know, they brought uh, Vince had the original idea of bringing me in his avatar, which was uh, he really wanted to capitalize on Mortal Kombat and uh, Power Rangers that were both very, very popular at that time. And he wanted a character similar to that. And the problem was that, you know, um, he had described a lot of, and I, I tell people all the time, I swear to God, like we had this conversation, and, and like all the vignettes you see that they did in WCW for Glacier. Like, were essentially, that was almost what he described as far as, you know, airing to debut the character of Avatar before I got there, which never happened. And, um, you know, we, uh, um, the problem was, is that, um, one, if I knew them what I know now, and I take full responsibility, um, I could have probably capitalized a lot more on that opportunity and that character. Uh, that, but it was a character. It wasn't a gimmick. And the difference between a character and a gimmick is, is a character is something they give you. It's not who you are. It's not an extension of your real personality. And a gimmick is really who you are, just with the volume turned way up. And that's why gimmicks work and characters usually fail. Right. Is, is simply because the audience, they can't feel it. They can't believe it because you don't. And um, you know, uh, I was set out there um, in a, an outfit that was that was the mask wasn't completely done, couldn't really see uh, the ring. I was used to in Smoky Mountain. Um, you know, there was the steel cable and the ropes, um, and I could do all kinds of aerial stuff off of those cables. I could stand in the center of the ring apron, spring up and turn in midair and land on the top rope and move salt into the ring and land on my feet or whatever you needed me to do. I got up there and they had real rope and the rope wasn't tightened up because a lot of guys didn't do anything off the ropes up there because after the Dick Ebersol uh, was Saturday night's main event, um, all the rings were almost like sound stages. They were real stiff and you didn't want to, you don't want to take any really huge, big bumps because it, it hurt. Um, so guys didn't really do a whole lot of stuff off the ropes. And so basically I couldn't do all the aerial stuff that I had done in Spooky Mountain. Um, and, uh, um, and I just, and I didn't work the gimmick correctly. Um, and I, and I didn't do the right business in that, that first match. You know, I tried to have a good match and not a match that got me over. And there's a big difference between the two. And, uh, so as a result, that kind of stagnated, kind of died on the vine and, uh, then they uh, came up with the idea of putting Marty and I together and didn't give us a whole, you know, never gave us a whole lot of direction, but um, kind of gave us the idea that we were 
supposed to be these uh, teen idol wannabes. And uh, Marty never really had his heart into it, which you can't blame him because, you know, it's kind of, I feel, and I'm sure Marty probably felt that it kind of knocked on what he and Sean had accomplished together. Sure. Um, um, and kind of, you know, kind of discounted that a little bit. And I, I completely understand. Um, so it was, you know, it was never um, going to go. Um, and Marty finally left. I think he came down there with you guys to WCW. And, uh, um, you know, I was left on my own. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'll be honest. I mean, it, you know, there were a couple of times, like, things went wrong really well and you know but i couldn't i just couldn't see the forest for the trees and um uh, people tried to talk to me and i had my head so far up my ass and was blaming everybody else out of my frustration as opposed to taking responsibility on myself and you know uh going out there in the ring and doing what needed to be done and getting myself over um i was still caught up in and you know uh oh i want to be a great wrestler and not a didn't think well, the way I was taught, the way I was trained, which was to be a worker, I'd gotten caught up in the old, you know, the, oh, I want to be a great wrestler routine. And, uh, and as a result, I, I blew a bunch of opportunities. And uh, it, uh, you know, got me even more frustrated. So I put in a request for my release and basically they rolled it over and kind of teach me a lesson, I think. And, uh, um, cause they had an extra year on their, on the contract that they, um, took it upon themselves to utilize. And, uh, um, so I was even more frustrated. And then, uh, thanks again to Chris Candido and, uh, working relationship with Paul Heyman had with this man, you know, uh, um, Chris went to Paul and Paul went to Vince and, um, I got put on loan to ECW because I knew I had to leave and go somewhere and basically reinvent myself and get myself over to where people could see me in a different light than what I had been for the last two, two and a half years in WWF. And, sure. uh, and thank sure. God it worked because I, you know, I went, uh, my mindset was completely different. I left. WWF and went to ECW and I went there for one specific reason and that was to reinvent myself and to get myself over. It wasn't to be a great wrestler anymore. It was to get myself over. And uh, and thank God it worked. And it worked. But before we get to that, um, uh, one, a couple of uh, observations that I have. First thing is uh, the difference between Avatar and Glacier, if it makes you feel any better, is that they spent about $800,000 on special effects for Glacier. So, uh, uh, with pretty much the same results. Uh, and I let, look, I, I love, uh, uh, I love, uh, Glacier and Ray Lloyd's, uh, been on this show and he's a friend, but you know, he, 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 he was the first person to come on this show and talk about, you know, how, how, uh, you know, how and why it didn't work. And, uh, the other thing was, um, so did you travel with Marty uh, when you guys were the new rockers? And if so, uh, any fun Marty Janetti stories? Because everybody has them. Uh, I traveled with Marty, and, you know, traveling with Marty was like traveling with the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I mean, a <laughs> guy, swear to God, like every time you turn around, like he was, you know, ribbing you 
in, in the most insane ways. Like you're like, how does how does your brain work? I mean, you know, we we if we went to a a town where we'd get to stay in the same hotel for multiple days, he he'd want to go to the grocery store and buy food so that he could you know leave it in the room so he could save money. And uh, you know, because we weren't drawing a whole lot. Everybody, nobody was, you know, killing it, making money. So one day I'm taking a shower and I hear scuffling out there in the room and what is he doing now? So I knew he's up to something. And uh, I think Glenn Jacobs or something the night before had like healed the room with us, shared the room, you know, and he was right. on the rollaway. Right. And so um, there wasn't much space between the wall and the bathroom door. So what had happened was I, I'm like, open the door real slow and I'll stand back because the door opens inwards. And all of a sudden it just swings open and this milk jug shoots across the bathroom and hits the wall and just explodes with milk all over the wall. <laughs> he had wedged like a spring somehow the mattress off the rollaway between the wall um, and the door so that when I would, and then sat the milk jug on there so that when I would open the door, it would <laughs> pop open and shoot the milk jug at me. So if I'd have opened the door, I'd have had milk all over me. I'm like, what do you, how do you, how's your fucking brain work? You know, I mean, who comes up with this? Marty Janetti comes up with it. Took the shower head off and stuffed it full of KY jelly. And, you know, I turned the shower on and greasy, grease all over me. Uh, it was like that all the time. You just you, you you just waited until you woke up, and you never did. The whole room was booby trapped, or the car, or the <laughs> restaurant. You go to the bathroom, and you'd be taking a crap, and he'd come in. He'd come in, and he'd shut the lights off, and it'd be pitch black in a public bathroom. You'd go to open the door to come out, and he had stacked all of the um, high chairs up against the door, so that when you open it, it'd all crash inside, and everybody's looking at you. It's like a little kid. You got to love it unless you're living it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, jumping ahead to uh, to going back on loan to ECW. Who, whose idea was the job squad in head? Was that yours alone? Was that a collaborative effort? Um, head was my idea. And uh, um, I just was trying to show that I'd had a nerve. You know, I figured anybody had had been at what I'd been at for as long as I'd been at it. Not to mention I had a real genuine frustration at that point. And I was, man, I was, I was really frustrated. I had a really bad attitude, you know, and I was blaming everybody else and blaming Vince and which I shouldn't have. It was, you know, it was my fault. Um, but, uh, that was what made it, the head work is because I was trying to show that I had a nervous breakdown. And I would literally channel all that frustration through the head. So everything I wanted to say to these people that I thought were it was their fault, I said through the head. You know, I would have conversations and I would always be arguing and fighting with them and, and they, you know, and making comments that were, you know, you could feel were the truth. That's how I really felt. And ultimately that was why it worked. Um, and the job squad was, you know, I, that was just a joke. I mean, I quite honestly was just being a smart ass in uh, WBF because, you know, the way I was brought into the wrestling business was, you know, the reason we all shake each other's hands is not that stupid idea that everybody has, which is, oh, I, 
I shake your hand out of respect. I can hate your guts and I'll shake your hand. The reason I shake your hand is because I need you and you need me. There's not one person in the wrestling business that can make money alone. Nobody can. You're not bigger than the wrestling business. I don't care who you are. It just don't happen. And that's why you shake people's hands. That's what the main event needs the opening match. And the opening match needs the main event. You treat each other in kind. This big man will come and shake your hand and tell you thank you. Because he can't be a promoter if he ain't got nothing to promote. Right. And you can't be a wrestler if you yeah. haven't got the platform that this big man provides. You can't win. And that was the thing that drove me nuts. Back in the day, <clears throat> if you were asked to lose, it was called doing the favor. Right. Because it's a favor. You expect it to be returned at some point. A job, or doing a job, a job guy, was because back in the day, you weren't paid for TV. So when you showed up at TV and you only came in for that day, just for TV, you were paid. It was a job. It was not an opportunity for you to get yourself over. Even if you were on TV and you lost, you were still on TV. You were still advertising yourself. So therefore, when you went out on the live events, your name on the poster meant something. So you had some kind of value, which means you made your money on the live events. That's why you didn't get paid on the TV. House, uh, job guys were guys that didn't go on the live events. They didn't make their money there. They got paid for the day and they got paid. It was a job. It wasn't an opportunity. Hence the term job guy. Well, now you got these these guys, they're walking around and they're making remarks like, well, yeah, who, who's that guy ever be? Well, same people you have, dumbass. The <laughs> ones that were asked to wake out for. Because you don't really win, because guess what? I don't really lose. So, you know, and that kind of, that frustrated me. And that was at a time when there were a lot of gangs or factions up there. And so I was standing one time and I told I'm going to start my own gang. He said, what are you talking about? You know, and, and of course, I am I had a bad attitude and, you know, um, felt like they were jobbing me out. Um, but it was simply because I wasn't taking advantage of the opportunities I was given. And um, I told him, I said, well, I'm going to get Barry Horowitz, Candido. I'm going to get uh, P, uh, uh, Just Incredible PJ, you know, uh, out of Montoya, I listed like five or six guys. I would call, call ourselves a job squad. Wipe the canvas with us. I said, we've been the most powerful wrestling faction here. He goes, now how are you going to be the most powerful wrestling faction? I said, let me tell you something. I said, if Undertaker goes out there and tombstones Barry Horowitz and Barry stands up and dusts the hair off, off, off the top of his head and walks out, who had the power in that match? Wow. I said, so I, I think we'd be the most powerful people here. Because you don't really win and you don't really lose. The only thing fake about wrestling is the finish. None of the physical things are fake. The only thing that's fake is the intent behind what you do. And if it were real, trust me, Dave, 98, 99% of us wouldn't be in it. And the business would consist of like Ken Shamrock, Brock Lesnar, Dan Severin, and maybe a handful of Steve Blackman who would kill everybody. And then that'd be it. Haku, you know, Can I throw Haku in Haku, there? maybe the Steiners, you know, they'd all, you know, about 10 or 12 guys they'd all fight each other, you know? Yeah. It's an amazing perspective that you have on the business. It's really interesting that I've never heard before. And, and, and especially when you talk about, you know, 
the reason that they were called jobbers is doing a job. It kind of almost makes me feel bad that I, I, I took a booking fee, but it wasn't my idea. I swear to God. <laughs> so, so, but so, um, I, I, I shudder to, to ask you this question, but I, I do want to get into, uh, yeah, one point you had a tryout with WCW and never really went anywhere aside from, uh, the, the, the dickhead, uh, uh, walking man who, uh, who, who, who apparently gave you a hard time. Uh, uh, what, what, what were the other reasons that it didn't work out? Uh, here's, here's exactly what happened. Okay. And for those who don't know the story, I guess I was the dickhead walking man, but go ahead. You weren't the dickhead walking man. You know, you were, you listen, you were running around and you know, you don't know me from Adam. Um, and, uh, I'm, uh, you know, sitting there and you come in and, and you, you know, uh, came in and you go here, sign this, sign this. And, um, I'm like, well, can I, I need to look at it real quick. And you were like, what? And I know, cause you, you know, you're under stress and you know, it's live it's TV and you're running around and here's this, this kid you don't even know. And he's like wanting to examine nothing more than just a release. And you, you know, you take it away and you run back and, I don't know if you told Terry Taylor or something, then Terry Taylor comes in and does his, you know, Hey, we just need to get you sign this so we can get you to, uh, um, so we can get you paid. And I was like, yeah, no problem. I'm, I just want to read it first before I sign it. And, uh, see, that's and what, that was all that. That's, way. that, that's what threw us off. Cause nobody ever read it before. You were, you were the only one I think that ever asked to read it. Maybe a little bit <laughs> later. On. That, that, that's what threw me off. It's like, you wait, hold on. You want to read it? I don't even know what it says. You're basically yeah. you're basically uh, throwing your whole life away. They say you're letting them know if you get hurt, they can't, you can't sue them, and uh, right. and, they, and they have your rights in perpetuity to use you on uh, what's now probably the WWE network. Uh, looking looking back, and uh, and yeah, nobody ever asked. So uh, I was just I, I was just like I, I didn't think it was I'm my sure you were probably <laughs> probably the funnel, just like what. Yeah. What's the reason? Who the hell is he? What's this guy all about? So, I, so yeah. we've and we've talked about that. I wasn't trying to, to cause any problems. I'm just like, hey, Terry, you, oh, know, sure. you believe that there's somebody who actually wants to read the release before they sign it? And he's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, so all that aside, and I, I thought I'd bring that up for a laugh. But all that aside, um, when was that, and why didn't it work? Didn't it work out? I don't know to this day. I, I that whole event was probably one of the most confusing things I've ever done in the wrestling business. It really was. I, you know, I'm sure the reason it didn't work out was because, again, I went out there with some kid that was uh, uh, covered in Pam cooking spray. I don't remember his name, but I remember he, he covered himself with Pam cooking spray. And, um, and then I went out there and I tried to wrestle a match. I didn't try to get myself over. I tried to have a good match. And I tried to show what I could do as opposed to trying to look like a star. Those are two big different things. And at the time I didn't, I didn't know that. And so I'm sure that problem had more of a factor in it than anything else. Um, but, uh, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of kabuki stuff too. I mean, it just was, it was just an odd situation. I, you know, um, I always say, you know, um, Here's the difference between when I went to WCW uh, down there for a tryout for a dark match, and I went to WWF. Um, I came to 
WCW. And before, before I came there, um, Jeremy Borash, was he with the company back then, Dave? No, I don't think so. Okay. Now, th- that's why, why it confuses me. Before I, before I get there, like, Jeremy Borash is calling me and is, is, like, trying to set this deal up, okay? And I'm not knocking Jeremy or anything. I mean, at the time, I didn't know Jeremy, and I just thought he was a fan right. from Detroit. That was, he told me he was from Detroit. So, I'm like, you know, uh, one thing leads to another. I've, you know, I've been talking to Jeremy. I, uh, um, you know, finally, uh, um, I forget, Janie Angle, I think, might have called me and says that, you know, they want me to come down for a dark match at the uh, center stage. JP, I go, okay, great. I'll, you know, be fine. So I uh, um, get the plane ticket and no phone call, no nothing, uh, nobody at the airport. I take the shuttle in to the C- I think the CNN Center, I think is where the hotel was. Um, am I correct? Uh, the boys stayed at this place called the Dungeon, which is a Ramada, but uh, they might have put well, you. They might have. They, they had. They put me up. At- yeah, they, they put me up at the, you know, the, yeah, they, they the nice one. They would have put you up at the CNN Center, so yeah. Yeah, so um, I, uh, um, I, the only reason I know about the, the uh, taking the shuttle or whatever into there is because Sandy Scott tells me to, to take that into uh, CNN Center. Because, again, nobody's called me, nobody spoke to me. I get in probably noon, um, check into my room, hang out, wait, don't hear anything for hours. It's about five, maybe 5.30. Um, I'm like, hmm, I don't even know where I'm supposed to go or what I'm supposed to do or how I'm supposed to get there. I'll, uh, I'll call Janie Engel. So I call the office, get Janie, about 5.30. And she's, oh, yeah, you need to be at center stage tomorrow. Um, I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, how do I get there? Well, you know, uh, you just need to be there. I go, okay. So luckily, Scott DeMore, who I'd known from up in Windsor and all that, uh, he was down with a crew of guys that were, you know, going to work the TVs. And uh, so I hopped in the car, got a ride with him, got over there early. And the way I was taught, brought in the business, was if it's not your locker room, Meaning you're, you know, you're new. Find a corner, sit, say hello to everybody. Be, you know, be sociable, but sit down and don't be a locker room lawyer. Don't be running around, and, you know, because um, it's not your locker room. So you just kind of, you know, hang back and, you know, talk to people and be friendly and be polite and and uh, read the release. That's it. Yeah, and then read the release, and, uh, you know, and that's about it. So then, you know, I waited. Nobody nobody really spoke to me. Um, me that kind of stuff a little bit. Um, and I sat there, I mean, quite literally all day from probably, I don't know what time we all were supposed to be there, one or noon or one o'clock or something until probably. 9 30 10 o'clock at night finally had that dark match with that kid um 
came back, um, got dressed, uh, went in to speak to Eric Bischoff. He said, uh, I said, you know, I told him that WWF had uh, contacted me prior to coming down and, and wanted me to come to Connecticut, like literally like a couple of days later after I got back. And he said, oh, you owe it to yourself and your family to go hear what they have to say. He said, uh, I've got to go do a pay-per-view, which was out in South Dakota. He said, when I get back, I'll uh, give you a call. I go, okay, that's uh, great, Eric. I look forward to talking to you. And I said, uh, I won't do anything with WWF until I hear from you. He goes, okay. And that was it. That was all that was said. Nothing more. Uh, nothing was discussed. No money. Nothing. Um, so, uh, um, yep, next day, you know, take the back to the airport, fly home. Um, then uh, um, I go. And then, New York. And then you go to Connecticut and get the uh, VIP treatment, I'm sure, is the moral of the story. I did. <laughs> I did. I got, I got, I came off the plane. There's a guy, a driver there with my name, sure. in a baggage plane with LaGuardia, takes me out, puts me in a limo. They drive me out. JJ Dillon and uh, uh, Lisa Wolf meet me um, and uh, give me the tour of the whole TV studio, give me the tour of the whole building, of the office building, Titan Towers. And I sit and talk to uh, Vince for two hours. And then he's like, here you go. Here's a contract. Um, I said, Vince, uh, you know, I told Eric Bischoff that, you know, I met with him and I told him that I would wait to hear what he had to say. He said, you owe it to yourself and your family, exact same words, um, to hear what he has to say and see what he has to offer. He said, uh, but that's yours and you can, all you have to do is sign it. Um, you know, and, uh, but you know, I, I understand. I said, okay, thank you. I said, I'll let you know. I went home, um, and then, uh, quite honestly, this is God's honest truth. Jeremy Borash started calling me again. And he goes, you know, and I'm, and at some point, I go, Jeremy, why are you calling me? I don't understand <laughs> why. Why are why is a fan negotiating on the behalf of, of a company, a wrestling company, not even a wrestling business? That, uh, to my knowledge, he wasn't at the time. And I'm like, you know, and he's like, well, Kevin Sullivan says. That you know you can't, you told uh, Eric that you needed at least one hundred seventy five thousand. I said I didn't say anything. He says yeah, and you know the, the boys said you had a bad attitude in the locker room. You wouldn't talk to anybody. I said, Nothing can be further from the truth. I introduced myself. I said hello to everybody. Um, it, so this whole thing to this day, I, I do not know what happened that day. I don't you know other than that I blew the match because I I tried again like I said to show what I could do as opposed to that I, that I was a draw. And, um, and then all of the, and then Jeremy Borash is calling me and negotiating with me. And I never did hear from Eric. I waited two weeks. And then I finally, I was like, well, I'm, I can't wait any longer. And I called JJ Dillon and I said, you want to sign the contract? And he said, great. And then that was it. Yeah. I have no clue why, Je- why Jeremy Borash would have been negotiating with you, but uh, you know, look, well, it's, there's books written about WCW and, 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 and the dysfunction, and so I wouldn't be uh, breaking any uh, hot you know, news off the presses, uh, and you're not breaking any by telling the story. I've been on the other end of going up to Titan Towers and being you know, met by a, a car and you know, driven right to the hotel and showing around the buildings, and you know, I, 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 see how the, I saw how the other half lived, so you know, uh, yeah. 
WCW is just, uh, you know, it, it, there was there wasn't, you know, I'm not making excuses. There just wasn't enough. Uh, it wasn't corporately structured the way uh, the it needed to be to gr- when it started growing the way it grew. And that's not an excuse. It's just the truth. Yeah, I, you know, but you know, WWF or now WWE hasn't. You know, it's only just recently became corporate and corporate structured. It just, you know, Vince has a. You can say whatever you want about him, but this this panache about how he wants to do business. I mean, he doesn't. He does things, you know, with class, and and not saying that WCW was classless or anything, but when you you compare the two experiences that are they're like night and day, you know, and, you know, and a large part of that, I think is because Vince was brought up in the wrestling business and understands the talent uh, are preeminent. You know, they are the most important thing in, in the wrestling business. Um, it, the wrestling business is the wrestlers business. It's not the promoters, not the writers. It's not, anyone it is the wrestlers business it they it belongs it is owned solely by them they are 100 percent in control of it um and that's kind of gotten lost along the way yeah absolutely so the, the mick foley jokes how did that start and uh was that sort of collaborative effort or was that more mick just yeah. trying to get you to pop i figured it was a i was actually gonna uh, uh bet uh you know just a gentleman's bet uh that that was a collaborative effort. You could kind of tell when things are, but I wasn't sure. So that was kind of you yeah. guys just like, you know, putting your heads together and coming up with stuff that entertained you. Oh, we, we started out in the car. We would do what we'd call like verbal boxing matches. And let me tell you something. I like, I, I had, a, you know, we'd have to throw a good joke or something. I had, I don't know how many standing eight counts. I'd knock him out. I'd have him on the road. <laughs> He'd be cat pawing, fighting for his life, you know, but and then it was just between us. But then Mick found out that it kind of got him over, so he would, you know, he took it outside of the car and into the locker room, and then from there onto the TV, and then from there into his books, and you know, and it just, it's just, you know, good natured fun, and and it really, uh, um, he and I, I, I'm not bragging, but like we share an on screen chemistry that's, you know, it's like Martin and Lewis or other comedy teams, you know, Abbott and Costello, it just, and it, you know, it just naturally put where I played the straight man or the, you know, in much the same way that Blackman did for me on TV. The only difference is that I didn't carry it on everywhere I went to the point <laughs> to where it seemed almost like a preternatural sexual obsession to where you just can't seem to let go of it. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about something that's not as controversial. Uh, did you hear the the, the WWE at the time or F at the time hear from any uh, uh, animal groups when you had Pepper for dinner? And uh, oh yeah, because 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 I couldn't even imagine doing something like in, in today's politically correct environment. That'd be uh, oh, you, yeah, you get thrown off. Television. I don't think you could get away. With it. Yeah, yeah, I don't think you can get away with it. There's far too many people there. And and is it is it true that that was based off the famous Fuji rib where he served his neighbor his dog? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that Fuji had hated his neighbor and hated his dog so much that when his neighbor went to work, he killed the dog. And then, then the neighbor was grieving for the dog, and so Fuji invited him over for dinner to kind of console him and basically set up his own dog. 
Yeah, I don't know that there's anybody that's been around the business for the last 20 years who hasn't heard that story and, and pop because it's one of, it's, uh, you know, say what you want. It's, it's, all, it's all true. You know, uh, you know, Dave, we, we don't have to make stuff up in the wrestling. <laughs> no, it's, it's why a guy like me actually get a, can make a podcast work is because I have people on that tell real stories that people don't believe are true. Yeah. So you yeah, go- I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in other form, you know, I'll go, I do some acting once in a while and I'll be on a movie set or something and start telling one of these stories and I'll be like, no, there's no way. Oh, come on. I'm like, no, really? You know, but then if you tell the same story to somebody that's in the wrestling business, they'll just shake their head and go, yep. Like, Hey, it's just another Saturday night. Of course. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so we're jumping around at this point and I don't really care. There's no format. Uh, Speaking of, I, I saw yeah. you did a movie with Christopher Lloyd. Did you get to, to meet him and spend any time with him? Because I'm like a taxi fanatic, and uh, I'm just wondering what if you got to spend any time with him, and if so, what he's like yeah. in real life. Just a great guy. I mean, just a terrific person. Just so so easygoing, and you know. And then, and then the minute he, the camera turns on, he turns on, and that's it. I mean, he's he's on. He's ready to go. Do you ever no. do you ever see this? Do you ever see the scene in Taxi where uh, he's taking the the test to get his license? Do you ever see that scene? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what does yeah. the yellow light mean? Uh, one of the greatest. I remember when he, remember when he was in backstage at um, one of uh, Tony Danza's. What, what was his uh, character? Or no, uh, um, the actor. Um, I can't remember the character name. And he was uh, he was backstage and he went to try to run a comb through his hair and then just couldn't, <laughs> couldn't get it to budge and his eyes got real wide as he kept trying to pull it. He just yanking his head back in the mirror. Jim Ignat- Jim Ignatowski was the character name and uh, the the what does a yellow light mean still holds up to this day as one of the funniest scenes in all of uh, television comedy. I think. Uh, tell me about tough uh, tough enough. Uh, interesting concept at the time. What were your thoughts on it originally? Um, you know, it, it, uh, turned out to be a, a really fantastic experience. And, and one of the things I'm, I'm so grateful that I was involved with, you know, uh, you know, that was back when really the only, uh, reality shows were, uh, um, real world and, um, and they had just started doing survivor and, you know, that we were the first show that was like a concept of, of the two of real world taking young uh, MTV age kids, putting them in the house, living together, and then basically competing in a contest to achieve a goal, you know, uh, a contract with WWF at the time, you know, so it was pretty groundbreaking at the, at the time. And that was back when it wasn't scripted or uh, scripted reality. It was, you know, they turn the cameras on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, you know, they would have events, you know, things that, you know, they'd take them out to nightclubs or take them out to, you know, take them on trips or things like that, hoping that to instigate um, some situations or things that could happen so that they could create TV. Um, but what you saw was pretty much what happened and the reactions and the, the interplay between the, uh, people was, was legit. I mean, it was all just, 
you know, they we, turn the cameras on. We had yeah. we had Josh Matthews on a couple of months ago and uh, on the podcast, and I was shocked when when I I, I figured. You know, like when I asked you, was you and Mick a collaborate uh, a deal? And I was almost positive that you were going to tell me yes. And uh, and so I figured I asked Josh Matthews, was there, you know, uh, was it, you know, you know, scripted for you guys to do different things? And he's like, no, they set us up in situations, but none of it was scripted. And I, I was expecting him to say the opposite. So that's that's amazing. Yeah, yeah no, it was just, you know, um, and, and I kind of tried to walk a line between, um, you know, always trying to maintain, because I'd always tell them, you know, we, you know, the, the producers would be like, we're making television, we're making television. I go, I get it. I understand. But I have to go, I have to go back to this world. And, you know, I was brought in, in the wrestling business at a time when, you know, um, whoever trained you was then held responsible for you. Um, you know, you carry the reputation around for you. And, and, and to this day, that's how I address and train anyone that I break into the wrestling business is that you now I'm responsible for you. So you're going to know and need everything you need to know. And you're going to do the best you can possibly do because you're a reflection on me and you're not going to ruin my reputation. And, and that was where, you know, cause everybody's like, Oh, you're, you know, you're a father figure. And cause you, I called them my kids. Like, no, listen, I'm 55. And the guy, Jim Lancaster, I'm still known as his kid. That was a term for the wrestling business. Right. You know, somebody broke you in, you were their kid. That meant they were responsible for you. Didn't mean they took you to raise. Didn't mean that they cared about your well-being. It meant that they were, they were responsible. They were, you know, and they, what you did affected their livelihood. So if you screwed up, you hurt business, then it would come back on them. And back in the day, you could get blackballed very easily, you know, where you couldn't get work. So, you know, uh, um, I would walk that line between trying to address that and at the same time, interact with the kids and um, create situations and circumstances and rib them, you know, partly out of, you know, entertaining myself and partly because man, when you're, uh, you're doing that kind of stuff, people don't realize just how intense and how much pressure there is on you, even if you're not even aware of it. I mean, the camera's always there, and you at some point forget about it, but still in the back of your mind, it's there. And you got to blow off steam somehow and, uh, you know, make it fun to some degree or else, uh, you know, the kids were just going to crack and they were going to quit and that was going to be it. We weren't going to have a show. Um, so it was, you know, it was, it was, it was an awesome time because I could still be a part of the professional wrestling business. I could still contribute to the professional wrestling business, but I didn't have to be around all the negativity right. that, you know, how the wrestling, the wrestlers themselves, a lot of times, they can, they can find something to complain about. And then let's face it. I mean, you're grown men, fake fighting in their underwear. So what's there to complain about, you know, but you could, you could pay a professional wrestler a million dollars a year, have him wrestle one night a year and he'd find something to bitch about. He did <laughs> first class. Uh, the flight was too long. He, the delay was, you know, he got delayed. Uh, the hotel's not good enough. Oh, I've got to win. I don't want to win. Oh, I've got to lose. I don't want to lose. Oh, I got to wrestle that long. I don't want to wrestle that long. Oh, I got to wrestle that short. I don't want to wrestle that short. 
But man, shut up. Just go. Nobody asked you to be in the business. You wanted to be in it. Enjoy it. I mean, it's the most ridiculous way for an adult to make a living. So let's go have fun. I love your I love your refreshing way of uh, of describing this business in so many different so many different ways you've done so in this interview it's it's very uh, refreshing. <laughs> um, before we get off of tough enough, who, who, if you could think of somebody uh, off the top of your head, who's the most naturally talented uh, competitor that you saw during your time as a judge there? Naturally talented, as far um, as the wrestling business goes. Oof, uh, man. That's to pick just one because they each all had their different aspects. Um, let me think. I would have to say, like Josh. Josh got it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Like the whole the the feel for it. You know what I mean? Like he had the feel for it long before anyone else did. Um, Nowinski. Nowinski was good and had the had that heel charisma and um, demeanor, and he could have been a really big star if it hadn't been for the head injuries and the concussion. But um, but he had had a little bit of prior experience. Um, Maven had the charisma and the and the size and the look, um, but he didn't have the feel for it like Josh did. Um, you know, uh, same with Nidia. Um, you know, Jackie and Linda, uh, Kenny, Kenny, I, I, t- I would say Kenny and Josh, uh, Kenny King as well, um, had that, had that feel for it. But at the time, Kenny didn't have that, that, that sense about him, that, that, that persona that he didn't have his voice and, uh, it sort of allowing to win would have been a, a disservice because he wouldn't have been ready and, and, he wouldn't have had the career that he's ended up having, you know? Um, and I even told him that at the time, um, you know, physically John Hennigan, um, unquestionably. Yeah, I was, I was, uh, part of me thought that that's what, what your answer would have been, but that's why I asked the question. Uh, uh, and the no, fun- because I, don't, I don't evaluate it. Like everyone else evaluates it now on, on what, what their athletic or physical ability is. That don't mean dick. Yep. That don't mean nothing. Uh, they, they don't draw money on its own, and, and, and it, it is, there's a sense, a feeling of, of, of that, like Josh and Kenny had long, well before they, they should have, that a lot of the others didn't. You know, and that's not to take away from the others. They, they, sure. were, they, were, they were very talented as well in their own way. They had their own advantages, their own strengths. So... Uh, was TNA gut check? Was that sort of like a, a, a take on tough enough? And uh, was was that ever a shoot? I, I remember people saying that that was a shoot, and you guys didn't know uh, who was. It was constantly a goddamn shoot. It was it was from the very first one where you know I never knew what to. I, this this is true. I never knew what to expect when we got out of that way, and that's that's the truth. We'd talk and we'd we'd come up with some kind of plan of action, you know. That was the idea, and we'd get in the ring, and then it would all just go who knew where. Um, right off the bat, when, you know, Flair all day, ah, no, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to say no, I'm going to say no, I'm going to say no. So the plan was we have one of us say yes, the other two say no. You know, that's the way it works. 
And then, you know, it was, you know, Flair said no. Then, you know, you get one last chance to cut a promo, basically kick out. Well, then the kid cuts this heartfelt promo and Flair changes his mind. And guess what? Now he's gotten hired. And it's like, what? (laughs) Joey Ryan, prime example of make the most of your opportunity. Joey Ryan comes out. He ain't getting hired. You know what I mean? Sure. You know, it's going to be yes, no, no. He, you know, Taz is in the ring. Next thing you know, Taz now starts to, you know, try to get himself over. gets up in the face of Joey Ryan. Joey Ryan gets up in his face, doesn't back down, and literally creates an opportunity and, and shoots an angle out of nothing and gets himself hired, gets himself a spot. I mean, it's the, it's, the, it's the epitome of everything I say about once you get in that ring, you, you have to make it the moment your own. And he did. He went for broke. He had nothing to lose, and he had everything to gain. He ended up getting the spot. You know, good for him. Hey, speaking of Joey Ryan, as speaking of Joey Ryan, as somebody who's a, a trainer and and now owns a territory, uh, what are your thoughts on his current gimmick with the uh, I can't, you know, the 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 dick thruster, I guess it's called, and all that. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what to make of it. You know that you know what the number one rule in wrestling is is if it sells tickets, do it. And you know, does that mean I'm condoning it? No, but but. Can I judge it? I certainly can't. Why? Well, one, I've made a living making people believe that I can knock another human being out with a plastic head. Can I? <laughs> no. Two, let's remember how ridiculous the people's elbow was when we first started watching that. Or the five-knuckle shuffle. Or the five-knuckle shuffle or the or Scotty Two Hotties Worm, the most devastating move in all wrestling was the Bulldog <laughs> prior to the Worm because it only takes three seconds to win and the guy had to lay there for 15 minutes while Scotty did the work. So, you know, I, it, it was, you can do, I tell people all the time, you can do anything you want to do in the, within the ropes as long as it's always within the context. If you sell that the objective of it is to try to win and not lose. If you can do that, I mean, think of, you know, uh, mankind and the mandible claw. You know, with a Saco, you know, it, it just, um, you know, it, it's, it's just got to be done in the right way. Um, and then you can do it. But, you know, um, but I'm not saying that that's, you know, that's the way you should do it. And I don't think everybody should be going out and trying to dick flip people. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, hey, you know, Joey used it. And got, he was one of the, he, before WWE had this relationship with ESPN, he was one of the first professional wrestlers to get back on ESPN in ages, you know? Yeah. You know, it's hard. It's hard because, you know, people, you know, like you and, and a lot of the old timers were brought up that, you know, you just don't do stuff like that. But like you said, it sells tickets. It's over. Uh, you know, people come to see the, the, the whole, the whole Kit Kat and Caboodle. So, uh, so, you know, like you said, who are, who is anybody to decide, if something that, that actually sells tickets is bad, you know, I, I understand both sides. I understand both sides you know, for sure. Draw, yeah. Where do we draw the line? I mean, you know, uh, the over even old timers. I mean, we've, there were territories. I mean, Memphis is infamous for, you know, I, my p- former partner, uh, Glenn Jacobs, um, Kane was Christmas creature. 
you know, dressed up like a Christmas tree. Oh, yeah, um, Lawler loved monsters. He was a comic yeah, book guy. Well, so. Yeah, so, you know, um, you know, where, where, where's that line? You know, where's, where's, you know, what, what is and what isn't and why? I, you know, it's a very subjective situation. Yeah. All right. Um, I appreciate your time, and um, I'm, we're going to wrap it up in in just a minute. But uh, t- talk to me. You were a producer in Impact Wrestling for uh, you had a hell of a run there, and uh, especially during uh, the turbulent period where uh, you know if if you believe the stories, and there's no reason not to. Uh, you know, there were times where they didn't know if there was going to be a pay per view. You know, uh, the day before a pay per view was supposed. Sure, they sometimes didn't even know if they were going to be TV. You know. So how how was how how was that how was that uh, and and was there ever a time that you thought for sure it was over because you know that that thing goes on and, and it's like the the Energizer Bunny. Yeah, and that uh, that TNA is quite honestly that's Bela Lugosi, that's a vampire, that's that's Dracula. <laughs> I don't know how many times that thing had a stake in its heart, and then all of a sudden you know you just as you're closing the lid, and, you, and then like a like a just. It just pops up out of the grave and it's alive again. And, uh, you know, and, and thank God, you know, the, the last thing the wrestling business needs is fewer places um, for talent to be able to, to work and, and fewer platforms to be able to promote. And, and, you know, and there were a lot of great people there that, you know, lost, you know, their spots. Uh, when the company went changed and, uh, you know, but Hey, at the end of the day, it's the wrestling business. And I don't need to tell you, Dave, you know, it's you and I both know it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when your run's going to come to an end. Sure. And, uh, you know, and you just, you know, you, you figure it out as you go. It's just, it, that's, it's always a game of trying to stay two or three steps ahead. And, you know, TNA was was you know it's, it's unfortunate that it it's it's now on the you know the TV platform that it is, but at least it's still surviving and it's still providing an outlet and it's it's still out there giving at least some kind of an alternative. Um, and I dearly hope that they you know uh, not only survive but at some point hit the right buttons and the right combinations and take off and get hot, you know, WCW, we just, you know, you've mentioned it. WCW was happy they got 1500 people in Greensboro, you know, North Carolina with Flair and Savage. And then all of a sudden, boom, right time, right place. Three years right later, three, three years later, we were putting 35,000 people in domes every Monday night. And, and, and competing, running head to head and, and actually beating WWF. Yeah. You know, so there, as long as they're still out there and they're on the map and they're still surviving, there is that opportunity. There is that chance. That they they seem to maybe. be hul- they seem to be hulking up a little bit. They see you know there seems to be a bit of uh of uh you know they their the ratings of uh, from what I uh, see online have gotten better and they got a little buzz about them uh uh at WrestleCon. I heard I wasn't at WrestleCon this year and. They, you know, some other house shows and stuff. So you never know. Any thoughts on uh, the current management, Scott Demore and Don Callis? Uh, you know, I know Demore uh, kind of helped him break into the business, and 
known him for years. Yeah, you did. I just I wish him all I wish him all the best of luck. You know, you know it's not easy. Um, you know, um, wrestling business and and a wrestling company is is definitely not an easy thing to do, and especially in this day and age. You know, um, the audience has become the only thing that you know. I have to say this because I say it all the time. Nobody listens. But, you know, <laughs> what do I know? But the only thing that's changed about professional wrestling is the level of sophistication of the audience. And that's it. Wrestling has been and always will be a mirror of society that it is presented in. And, and if you don't think so, just go back and look through the evolution in the, of, of wrestling and, and it'll, it'll markedly be on pace with the evolution of the audience. Um, but, um, you know, uh, that's what makes it so, so difficult these days is that the audience has become so much more sophisticated. Um, and so as a result, the performers have to be more sophisticated. They have to perform in a much smarter, much more sophisticated manner, uh, than what wrestlers did even just 20 years ago or but certainly 30 or 40 or 50 years ago could do. And, uh, and especially with the advent of, of, of MMA, um, which is really quite honestly is, is professional wrestling, um, right. just, you know, ramped up, but MMA, MMA is basically catch wrestling, which is what professional wrestling is sure. with the allowance of using close fits because of wearing gloves, you know, and um, uh, so you have to, for the audience, because the audience desperately, and this, this is another big newsbreaker too, contrary to popular belief, um, you know, people have known that professional wrestling has been predetermined for quite a decades. You know, I remember in 1976, I was 12 years old, and I told my grandmother I wanted to be a professional wrestler, and she said, why do you want to do that? It's fake. Now listen, <laughs> I, loved, I loved her dearly. She wasn't a men's candidate. And she wasn't a former professional wrestler, so how'd she know that? Because everybody knew it. That's why. It wasn't just because Vince came out at a certain point and said, told everybody it was fake. Everybody knew. They've always known. So why did they all continue to pay to see it? I kind of didn't know, but I was 14. Do I get a pass, or am I just a dumb shit? I kind of didn't know, too, when I was you because I wanted to believe and, and an audience wants to believe because they sure. spent their money to believe. It's no different than when you go to a movie, when you're in the movie, you want to believe in the movie. You know, you don't think that Spider-Man is a documentary about a teenager <laughs> who shoots jizz from his wrist and swings around and sticks the ceiling. You know, that's it. So, you know, the performers, the wrestlers have to work smarter and portray that it is a competitive situation and not just, a demonstration of of a series of athletic moves just sprung together without any kind of consequence to them. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so finally, you bought Ohio Valley Wrestling. Uh, storied history behind Ohio, Ohio Valley. You know, I, I, I kind of if those walls could talk at the Davis Arena, it'd be amazing what they'd say. Yeah. Uh, how did that? How did that happen? And what are your plans moving forward? Well, Danny and I had kind of been talking, and Danny was in, you know, 
had bought a, a beautiful place down in Clearwater, Florida, and you know, he's uh, done forty years. I knew a good I know a good realtor. I wish he would have used me. Damn. All right, go ahead. <laughs> and uh I think twenty five or twenty six of those years with Ohio Valley Wrestling. Right. You know. And um he was just it was time. He was ready. And um you know, I've when I helped create the developmental program for TNA there at OVW, and then when I was brought down initially to uh, oversee the developmental program for WWE there, you know, um, I got involved with writing and producing and, and booking, and, and, and I just I enjoyed it so much, and training the, uh, the younger wrestlers, and, um, you know, it was, it, it, I just had such a great time, and I think, you know, it, you know, I can't wrestle forever. Um, at some point, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting my bump card starting to get full. Sure. And, uh, all the holes are about to be punched. And um, it's hard to find something that you can be as passionate about as what you are when you're, you know, you're, you're a performer. But an opportunity like this, you know, um, only comes around once, and 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 uh, I think it's a, it's an amazing thing. To, I'm very excited to do it, and you know, um, when, when I was here right before WWE, uh, you know, moved everybody to Tampa. Um, we had at that point in time, we had ran 186 live events in one year. Um, 52 of those were the television events on Wednesdays, but with tape TV. But 134 of those were were house shows, live wow. events, with an average attendance of about 350 people. Um, you know, 350 people doesn't sound like a lot, but if you multiply that over 134 events, that's a pretty significant number. Sure. And uh, as far as an audience is concerned, and um, and I want to build it back up to that. I want to take it back that direction, and I want to provide. Uh, a place that, you know, um, we can develop talent, uh, people can get experience, find their voice, and learn to be a star before they ever get exposed on the national stage. Um, you know, because this will be the place to do it. And and at the same time, try to make money and buy my own place in Clearwater, Florida, and I'll give you a call. <laughs> Please do. Uh, any chance that Jimmy Cornette, since you go back so long, get back involved in, in OVW? I don't think, you know, I don't think for Jimmy's sake, I don't think so, because, you know, Jimmy's happy and, and comfortable doing what he's doing, and I think that, you know, when Jimmy gets around it, because he's just so passionate. Yeah, so um, passionate. He's exactly right. Yeah. I just, I don't think it would, you know, I don't think he'd be happy. I don't think he, you know, I don't think it would be a positive for him. So I think Jimmy would be better off, you know, I'm more than willing to listen to Jimmy, you know, take advice and, 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 you know, Jimmy can give me input and God, that would be invaluable. Um, You know, but I think if Jimmy becomes invested or, or in any way emotionally, it, it's just going to frustrate him and drive him crazy and, you know, and, and wouldn't make him happy. So You're probably uh, exactly right. Hey, Al, best of luck on that. And uh, if, 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 if somebody that's listening uh, wants to uh, come and train uh, in Louisville, Ohio Valley Wrestling, where do they go? Is there a website, Twitter? Uh, 
Yeah, uh, you go to, I'm new to all of this myself, because I just only got the bag on place. Um, if you want, you know, go to Ohio Valley, OVW, or o, uh, um, OhioValleyWrestling.com, and they can check it out. And, uh, um, and also on, the, uh, on Twitter and Facebook and uh and if you have any questions, you can always contact me on social media. And I'm at the real Al Snow because yes, there were some fake ones. Um, <laughs> and I would, I would always uh, contact them, and I would say, "Hey, if you're going to fake being a celebrity, why don't you aim higher? You know what I mean?" <laughs> Just a oh, that's too much. Yeah. Hey, so you guys still have local television, correct? Yes, we do. Uh, and I'm sorry, the website is ovwrestling.com. Ovwrestling.com. Uh, OVWrestling. And we do, we are uh, 26, after tomorrow night, we will be 26 weeks away, Dave, from our 1,000th episode. Wow. And, you know, production. So, so for somebody who, who, who wants to go train, correct me if I'm wrong, I do believe that this is the only, uh, the only school, so to speak, that uh, has... Uh, weekly uh, episodic wrestling show locally television. So, yeah. television. so yeah. that, that's certainly advantage. Yeah. You know, you don't you 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 be ready to rock, rock and roll whenever you get called up to the next big place because uh, you'll have all that experience. That's awesome, man! C- yeah. Congratulations on that. Best of luck and um, uh, really entertaining and uh, and and thoughtful uh, insight about the the wrestling business and your story. And I appreciate the time. I know you're flying off overseas tomorrow, so have a great trip and um, and best of luck on and on OVW. Thank you very much, Dave. I appreciate it. A big thank you, ladies and gentlemen, to Al Snow. Enter- as more entertaining than I even thought he would be, and uh, you know his 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 vision on the business and his take on on what this professional wrestling business has become is uh, is fantastic, in 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 my opinion. And uh, uh, anybody that uh, that that might want to be a professional wrestler uh, down the road that might want to be uh, in the wrestling business uh, should definitely give that interview a listen. And uh, because there's so much perspective uh, and most 99% of it, in in my opinion, is spot on. Uh, So uh, the best uh, for him in in OVW, we hope he could get that uh, flourishing again. And uh, again, if anybody wants to find out more about it, that territory, uh, either to train or just to, to catch up and see what's going on there. It's uh, ovwrestling.com, and you can catch Al Snow on Twitter at the real Al Snow, uh, as he told you. But a big thanks to Al, and uh, I understand he has a book coming out. We didn't get to it, but in 2019. So if you like what you heard, be on the lookout for his book coming out next year. Again, next week, we are so excited to welcome the Total Package Lex Luger and uh, already started uh, thinking about some questions I wanted to ask Lex. We definitely, if you listen to the Bill Alfonso episode and his description of the cage match with uh, Bruiser Brody and uh, Lex Luger in Fort Lauderdale, that's legendary. Uh, we'll definitely ask Lex about that. Uh, so we'll get his take on, on the what happened with Bruiser Brody, there's only three takes on that one, and uh, there's only two that could that are still here to tell you. So uh, we're going to get both on sitting ringside, and we try to bring on interesting guests, uh, both from 
in front of and behind the cameras each and every week, and we hope you enjoy it. If you do, be sure to subscribe. Uh, tell your friends and neighbors. Tell uh, yell it down the street uh, if you if they allow you on the platform you listen to leave a review. Uh, we encourage you to do that as well. And uh, as always, hit me up at David Penzer at Penzer Ringside. Uh, always engaging in Twitter. And if you have any questions that you want me to ask Lex Luger. Uh, I'm going to go on, on Twitter as this gets closer, and I'm going to uh, ask for your input as well. But be sure to uh, hit me up uh, on Twitter, or you can email me if you don't uh, get Twitter at davidpenzer at radioinfluence.com. davidpenzer at radioinfluence.com. So lots of fun stuff. Thank you to Al Snow. Looking forward to Lex Luger. Thank you for listening and being a part of uh, – this great podcast that we try to bring you each and every week until next week and the total package Lex Luger I'm David Penzer I'll still be sitting ringside follow David Penzer on Twitter at David Penzer also make sure to follow the show on Twitter at Penzer ringside you've been sitting ringside with David Penzer on Radio Influence this is a Landry football with Chris Landry Quick Fix on Radio Influence. I'm not into the, well, who's going to go one and give me a mock draft type nonsense that you get everywhere else. I think he's the most sensible number one overall pick. I felt it, quite frankly, for months. I've said it. I think he's the quarterback that has the highest floor, the less less chance of him struggling or having problems. Now, listen, it doesn't mean it can't happen. If you don't coach him well, you don't build a team around him well, he can struggle. You absolutely can. Okay, but I think there's less of a chance for him to fall into that scenario than others because I think if it happens, he'll handle it better. Chris Landry brings you Landry Football every week on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and, of course, RadioInfluence.com.